I don't know what I'm going to do. I like, how do you slot that in? We we need to do, can't we just do this in, in your, one take? Why do we have to do this? Just you like, always have a nice little outro. You pick something from the preamble part of the show and put it into the outro. <laughs> I, lo- I love it when you give me like editing tips. Yeah, yeah exactly. I said, this is garbage. Just do it, don't do it this way. I have no idea what's involved. I don't know. I, have no I want to know where to begin with the software that you use on this thing. How do you make this? One day we should do a behind the scenes video watching you edit the podcast. Yeah. And be. taking my high pitched uh, squeals out. Yeah, that'll be a, fa- a fascinating, fascinating viewing for, for the yeah. audience. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. How are you today? Hello, Professor Kaplow. How are you? I'm doing excellent today. I hope you're doing well. I hope you had a nice break, uh, winter break. I hope your beginning of the spring semester is going going well. Yeah, it's great to be back in the studio. You know, this this uh, month and a half hiatus. I I missed it. I really did. I got to say, we got a weird job, man. This month and a half break is a strange thing. Well, it's, it's not supposed to be a break, really. It's supposed to be a, like research time, getting your syllabus ready for the spring. You know, you're still working. You did some traveling. You do. We're getting some work did done. Did some traveling. I went to India uh, for a work trip and. It was a very long trip in the sense that the day I was supposed to travel, the FAA had their uh, sort of like meltdown in the morning, and that that basically messed up everything for a good 24 hours. The day after that, I, I tried again, and there was weather uh, in, the, in the Northeast. And so those of you that fly uh, in the United States in the Northeast, you know that any type of weather just kind of messes everything up. So I ended up missing my flight on day two and got rerouted through Europe. Uh, and it ended up taking, you know, an extra like eight hours or something like that. So I, I kind of missed a day and a half or two days of my, my India trip, but it was actually a really good trip in the sense that we were able to interview, uh, lots of interesting people for this book that we're working on. Uh, and I went to the archives in India, which, uh, were not as helpful as I thought they, they might be, but nevertheless, it was a good experience and I got to kind of see what they have. So now that I know what they have, uh, that'll, that'll help me in the future. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, that's fun. Anyway, so Jeff, I have a question for you. Yeah. Over the break, I was reflecting on uh, the COVID pandemic, right? And thinking about it in terms of uh, the the sort of domestic situation. I was like, you know, because really what spurred this was, I remember on CNN, when you turn the news on, or like the New York Times website, there'd be like the coronavirus like tracker, right? There'd be like the COVID numbers. And uh, it would be like a constant kind of thing. And somewhere along the line, uh, that stopped featuring prominently, right? So I noticed on CNN, they no longer have like coronavirus tracking. And the New York Times doesn't have their little map anymore about where things are going up. I mean, I'm sure they do have it, but it's not like on, like, on the front page. So it made me realize, like, number one, I don't remember when that happened. I'm not sure if that was the Russian invasion of Ukraine, put, put everything like off the front page. I'm not sure when that happened. But it's an indication that things uh, have gotten much better, I think, uh, COVID-wise, at least in the United States. And that made me reflect kind of on the broader pandemic uh, about COVID and international relations. I remember in the early days, we'll go like March 2020, April 2020, you know, for the next six, eight months after that, you and I had a couple conversations about uh, COVID and a lot of the sort of wisdom that from, from people who study international relations was that this is, this is a game changer. Like this is going to be uh, so like revolutionary in its effects. Uh, the world that we know 
the world that we have come to like think that we understand is gone. Uh, and things are just going to be very different. So whether that's, uh, you know, diplomacy, whether that's interstate relations, whether that's international organizations, things are just going to be very different. And actually, I remember being in a webinar where somebody said this is going to be bigger than the, the, the falling of the Berlin Wall. Right. So basically, like the Cold War ending, uh, COVID is going to be just as big, if not bigger. I think now we're, we're now basically three years uh, removed from March 2020. It seems to me anyway, a lot of those sort of predictions or um, thoughts about what the, the effects of, of COVID didn't really pan out. And I'm wondering if you sort of agree with me that maybe some of that was overblown. And, and then in, in actuality, from an international relations perspective, now, we have, to, we have to be clear. Clearly, from a humanity perspective, it was horrendous for lots of people. A lot of people died uh, unnecessarily. Lots of bad things happened. But from an international relations perspective, it seems like a lot of the predictions just as of now haven't really panned out. And I'm curious if you, you agree with that or, or not. It's interesting that you bring that up because that's actually a topic that I was discussing in my class um, just earlier this week. This idea of what is the lasting impact of, of COVID on international affairs. And, we, you know, this podcast is like a product of COVID, right? I mean, we like we started this thing. So this is one lasting major impact. <laughs> well, who knows? Right? The this pandemic may also gave be birth to cheap talk. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether this will be one of the lasting impacts. But we, you know, we started the podcast because we were we were trying to reach out to students in a different way in the context of these remote classes that we were doing. And when we yep. when we kicked this thing off, you had just finished teaching, I think, a summer class maybe on summer class the pandemic and international relations. And so I think was that am I making that up? Was that a thing you did? No, you, I, I taught that class because I wanted to think through with the students. What was going on? Like, what, 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 what's no, happening you, here? You, you saw a trend and you wanted to hop on. It was like one more well, fad that's also that, that you, yes. you, you know, yes. wanted to associate yourself I with. I do like the fads. Yeah. I do like the fads. So, I mean, I feel like you were an early buyer of the, oh, the lasting impact hypothesis, right? That this is, this is going to be, be a big change. And I, I agree with you. Like, it's, it's not easy to point to these, these lasting impacts. But let me just say a couple things. I mean, from the, the, perspective that I take on this, and I, I was talking to my students about this, is that anytime you have a global event that kills, what, we're talking 6.8 million people now, mm -hmm. right? That's got to leave a mark. It's got to be some lasting impact from that. And the, and the question is, like, where can we identify these, these impacts? Are they more than just kind of accelerating changes that were already underway, right? Because I think a lot, when you ask people like, oh, what are some impacts from COVID? The kinds of answers you get are the kinds of things of like, well, we saw that trend pre-March 2020, but now maybe it's moving more quickly or moved more quickly. So um, increasing income inequality around the world, right? That'd be one example of this. Or the trend toward diversifying supply chains in the international economy. Um, you know, moving away from having, say, all your eggs in the China basket when it comes to, to um, technology manufacturing, for example. Right. And these are things that people were talking about before COVID, and now there's more of that, right? And so it's kind of hard to say, well, how much did COVID really matter there? Was it just kind of drawing attention to a problem that already existed and causing it to, to um, accelerate? The area where I think that I think should be the easiest to point to a lasting impact, but, but actually isn't is this idea of how prepared are we for the next pandemic? 
Because if there's like one bare minimum thing you might ask of our governments around the world and international organizations, it's that having just suffered through this crazy pandemic with huge consequences, huge human consequences all over the world, that ought to have put us in a better position to deal with whatever comes next in terms of a global public health emergency. And it's not all clear to me that we are better positioned in any way except for vaccines. So I think one lasting impact of this might be that we have shown we are able to, at least in this case, manufacture vaccines and distribute them far faster than anyone really thought we could. And that mRNA vaccine technology is going to be like a big deal, already is a big deal in other for dealing with other diseases that we hadn't thought we were on track to have vaccines for. So the impact of this is pretty substantial. And it's very clear that COVID kind of accelerated that technology in a real way. But when it comes to other aspects of managing a pandemic, global health, public health surveillance systems, uh, rapid response capabilities, surge capacity in our um, public health apparatus, none of that stuff has been created. And in fact, in some ways, we have even more gaps than we did pre COVID because a lot of the individuals who are involved in these kinds of efforts, you know, kind of burned out and left government and left international organizations. So I, I think like even in this kind of what is the bare minimum we can expect from international organizations and governments in response to this pandemic while being able to deal with the next one? I think by by that measure, there really hasn't been much of a lasting impact. And so when we think about other things that international relations scholars were talking about in the early days of the pandemic, Will this upend the international hierarchy and, you know, take the take the great powers and knock them down a peg, all this stuff? None of that really seems to pan out. And if anything, the pandemic seems to have solidified the status quo um, in a way that, you know, maybe was predictable, but it isn't one of these like stories about, oh, well, this was just the spark that was needed to change the world. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately, I agree with, with basically everything you said. I mean, I think it, it, it's striking in the first part of your comments, you know, it's striking that more hasn't been done on the preparedness for, for the next one. Now, you know, it's possible that there are things that are behind the scenes that, you know, scientists and government officials have been working on. And maybe that, you know, there's some secretive kind of, you know, uh, surveillance system we don't know about. Maybe that, that that's true. But it does seem like the the sort of Hegel that famous Hegel line, you know, it rears its ugly head. It's like the thing that we learn about from history is that we don't learn from history, you know? And I think you might say that like one of the, the sort of tragic aspects of the, the pandemic is that it doesn't seem like we're, we're ready for the next one. And the next one might very well be much worse, right? I mean, one of the things that people have pointed out about, about COVID was that, you know, thank goodness we were able to get this vaccine. The vaccine worked uh, to, to a large extent. And was able to stem stem a lot of the, the the problem. If we're in a situation where we have a virus or a bacteria or a fungus, or I was just watching The Last of Us on on HBO Max, uh, me too. great show. Yeah, yeah, I feel like zombie stuff. But anyway, so like if we, if there's some pandemic that's that's even more deadly uh, and affects wider you know sort of aspects of the population, then we're going to be kicking ourselves that we didn't take this opportunity to sort of put in uh, systems in place. So I, I agree with you 100. percent I think it's that that part is is a little surprising. I think it's also uh, just quite interesting that from a great power competition perspective, it seems like, if anything, it just kind of reified existing trends, you know? So, like, China and the U.S. Uh, had disputes about 
uh, Taiwan and, you know, these things that existed before the pandemic. And they have them after the pandemic, right? We haven't had these sort of fundamental shifts in relations that I think a lot of us uh, were kind of thinking would happen. Now, maybe if you went back to March 2020 and asked us why we thought those things would happen, maybe we didn't have great reasons to think that they would happen. But it just seemed like something so big of a shock to the system had to have large effects. And I guess, you know, maybe this was a shock to the system, but the system kind of recovered uh, in a way that we weren't expecting. I think one thing that we do have to talk about is, um, and it's not international, although there are links, the domestic situation uh, in a lot of countries, you know, what I think that was harder to kind of predict and see how that was going to play out. The increased polarization, you know, all of the the things associated with masks in the United States and vaccine hesitancy and and uh, leading to you know the the insurrection and all that type of stuff. I think that that is where maybe you might see a stronger kind of effect uh, when you start you know digging into the domestic politics of. Um, you know, Western Europe and the United States. Yeah. So uh, I think but, just, let me stop you yeah. there because I, I think that's a really interesting idea that where we're really going to see the impact of COVID is on domestic politics in various places. And people have talked about the rise in nationalism, like a, a turn inward um, when it comes to economic policy and domestic economic policy, um, that, that all of these things are a result of the pandemic. And I, I just am not convinced of this. I think it's, it's certainly possible, but when you look at U S politics, is it really true that COVID has changed U.S. politics in this way? I mean, if you go to the pre-pandemic trend of where we were headed, is an attempted insurrection really that far? Was Is that really because of COVID, right? I mean, or is that just a continuation of a trend that we had seen previously? Like a, a lot of the kind of rise in right-wing governments in Western, in Europe and in, in the U.S., I mean, that that trend was there previously, right? And so can we really give COVID credit for it? Or how will we know if COVID is really having this kind of lasting effect? Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, I, I would not make the argument that COVID is responsible for the increased polarization in the United States since, I don't know, whatever, what date you want to put on it. But I I think it's it's it was certainly an accelerant. Like, I think that... that the January 6th stuff was saliently different from what was going on, even in, in 2015, 2016 with the, the Trump election. Like, I just I feel like during the pandemic, uh, things got it, it was like pouring gasoline on the fire. You know, it was like the fire didn't start, but we were, it got a lot bigger and it got it got more aggressive and got, you know, people were, were more upset and more angry. Um, and there were economic effects, too. Right. So I think part of the part of the polarization issue is it comes down to a sort of economic a security issue where if you can't you can't work and you know the, the pandemic is having all these negative effects on your own your own house it it extremism then you know becomes more likely so how would we know that's a difficult one um but well i mean we, one way we could do it would be like looking at uh 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 public opinion like you could look at uh polls obviously about polarization you could look at what's going on in social media so you could track you know sort of like the level of anger on Twitter, for example, or Facebook over time, compared to 2016, let's say, to what's going on in 2020, 2021. Uh, these aren't great, great ways of doing that, but they would give you some indication. So I think, I think there's ways that the scholars could look at this. Um, but my, my sense, just, just looking at the situation, is that COVID definitely accelerated polarization processes that were, were certainly in place uh, prior to the pandemic. Maybe. I mean, the, the economic piece of it is kind of interesting, too, because... 
you know, there's a lot of talk about the way that COVID increased economic inequality all over the world, um, made clear that there are whole groups of people that all these technological advances have passed by the availability of vaccines to, yeah. for example, the global south and many uh, countries um, that, that didn't have their own vaccine technology, the U.S. using the vaccine here first and then distributing what there was left to others. All of that is happened and is a true thing. Right. But when you look at the U.S. domestic political situation, the gains from the gains against poverty during the pandemic are also real because of pandemic era policies to like increase the child tax credit and all of these things that were and, you know, pay people basically um, in terms in, in form of tax refunds to because they were stuck at home. So actually, like the, the levels of poverty decreased in the United States during this time. And so if you want to tell a, an economic alienization story, then it, it's it becomes a little more a little more difficult. And, you know, maybe things were worse in 2020 than they were in 2019 or 2018. But it was also an election year. And uh, so you can imagine there's a little bit of a cyclical nature to some of these partisan uh, happenings. But mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, I don't want to die on this hill. I'm just saying, like, pointing out <laughs> that it is difficult to point to the pandemic as the thing that that's doing all this work, especially right. when these trends were visible pre pandemic. What we haven't seen is a complete sea change in the international system in the way that I think some people thought we might. And it's, it's interesting, you know, I was for, for the class. Um, I was going through some intelligence com community reporting, public reports of the, they do this, the U.S. intelligence community does this annual threat assessment thing that they put out and they talk to Congress about. And the, there was like a summary of these, of these threat assessments throughout COVID. And you can see kind of in the first COVID era threat assessment, it's all preoccupied with the effects of the pandemic. And then the, in 2021, it's like, um, well, you know, uh, there's there's some of these lingering effects and it's still a problem. And then in 2022, it's like talking about all these countries and the threats pose, posed in these countries. And they describe what's going on in these countries. And they say, and of course the COVID uh, exacerbates this, right? It's basically this, <laughs> right, the, right, the intelligence right. community is just like sprinkling COVID in to all of the things mm -hmm. they were already saying. They're like, mm -hmm. you know, here's the problem in this country. Here's the risk of, of um, armed uprising or rebellion or whatever, um, and, uh, you know, social issues. And of course, COVID makes that harder. And of course, COVID makes that harder. And it's not a very kind of deep analysis, right, of how exactly is COVID affecting these things. It's almost like you're listing the problems in some country. Let's throw COVID in there because COVID is a problem for everyone. But it doesn't really say to me that someone has done some some analysis here that suggests that COVID is really a driving force in any particular way. It's just kind of exacerbating what's already going on. And I think there's a when we look at the kind of the IR literature on this, that's kind of what's happening, right? If people are kind of throwing COVID into the list of global problems that affect things, but mm -hmm. you don't see a lot of people saying, but here's the here's the sea change that we that owes to the pandemic. Right. That's a good point. I mean, and one of the sea changes that could have happened, like if you if you run it counterfactual, like the United States might have realized having this reliance on these global supply chains and having, you know, China be like the manufacturing hub of the international system works great when you can have, you know, ships move and ports open and stuff like that. But what but what happened with COVID was it showed the fragility of this type of, of supply chain. Right. So one might think. 
these conversations that the United States has been having internally about sort of decoupling from China. You know, it's never really clear what that means. It's complicated. But like, you know, sort of more more uh, uh, economic policy and sort of manufacturing policy that's inward looking, that's about like sort of economics back at home, maybe increases in protectionism, you know, uh, tariffs rising, more price of goods going up. Like price of goods are going up, but I don't think it's because of, of protectionism. I think it's just inflation for all kinds of different reasons. So in any event, you might have thought, Okay, here's one area, at least, like international economics, where we, we're going to see like a very big change as countries start to realize we can't rely on partners anymore. We, this interdependence idea doesn't work in a, in a system where you can have pandemics. We need to start doing stuff uh, at home. And I think we've seen some of that, but I don't, I don't think we've seen it to the levels that many people would, would have predicted. And the decoupling from China, maybe that's happening. Again, hard to kind of see exactly... Uh, if it is or isn't, but in, and then linking that to COVID, doesn't seem like there's been a whole lot of change there. So I I agree with everything you're saying, and I think that it's also uh, surprising to, to look at the areas where we would have, would have thought there would be the most change, but we don't actually see it. Yeah, the decoupling thing is interesting too, and I think COVID has really drawn everyone's attention to trouble with the supply chain, right? Like yeah. we're all supply chain analysts now, and and if you talk to me about the supply chain in 2019. I've been like the supply, what, you know, but, but now, uh, you know, we're all kind of like, well, where is, where does our toilet paper come from? We're, we've all learned all of these things, um, that maybe we would have preferred not to know. And, uh, I think there is a real way in which COVID has drawn attention to supply chain issues, uh, but this is not like, it's not like this wasn't something that was already on the agenda and on the, on the radar for, for particularly companies that have to worry about this to get their products to market. So, you know, there are a lot of people talked about, um, Apple's slow decoupling from China. So a lot of uh, Apple, you know, all the Apple products are made in China. iPhones are most prominent. And, you know, one of the issues for the iPhone um, is that it's made at these particular giant factories uh, in China. And those factories were shut down for a period because there was a COVID outbreak at the factory. And so no iPhones could be produced for like a couple of weeks right at the time when iPhones need to be produced to make sure that they are able to be distributed all over the world. And because of this, you know, well, maybe because of this, but this kind of draws attention to the to the issue for a company like Apple. Okay, maybe we need to make some iPhones in India. Maybe we need to make some iPhones in Vietnam. And so this kind of broadening of the diversification of the supply chain is a real thing that's happening. It's not clear to me that wouldn't have happened anyway, but certainly the issues with COVID have drawn attention um, to, to, the, to this problem. Yeah, and I think there's there's two other um, things that are worth mentioning. The first is that, uh, as with a lot of things, like trends uh, and long-term consequences of things, you know, take a long time to figure out, right? So it could be that one of the things that's happening is that we are in the midst of some sea change that you and I uh, can't appreciate and don't see, but it doesn't mean that there won't be one, right? And it's just that the effects of this uh, pandemic, despite the fact that we're just kind of three years into it, are going to be long, long uh, felt. Uh, and take a while to kind of materialize, right? I am, I am sympathetic to that view that a, a skeptic might say, you know, Professor Kaplan, Professor Holmes, you are simply looking at the present and you don't see what's right in front of you, but you will soon see it. I remember that there's this famous line, I can't remember the, who the um, the author is, but there's a, the, the student kind of asked this professor, you know, what what do you, what are, what were the effects of, of the French Revolution? Like, were these, were these good uh, for, for Western uh, society? And the professor says, the jury is still out. Right. So in other words, like things take a long time to kind of like figure out how they're going to how they're going to play out. So it could be very well that we're actually seeing change and uh, or not seeing change that is actually occurring. 
The last bit that I want to talk to you about, though, uh, on this is a more kind of domestic politics take. <clears throat> the one change that has happened within the last you know six months or so has been China's response to COVID, right? So for most of this podcast, China has taken a very clear kind of zero COVID approach. They've been, they locked down cities, they locked down towns, they've been doing lots of testing. And then seemingly sort of overnight, uh, Xi Jinping, I guess, changed his mind and they, they have opened things up and they've, they've sort of abandoned the zero COVID uh, policy. And this has engendered a lot of discussion uh, amongst people who watch China as to why, like what, <laughs> what, what explains the change? Like, why are you, you know, kind of doing it about face here? Do you have any sort of sense uh, uh, from the things that you, you look at and follow as to why China uh, had decided to make this change and, and the timing of it? Well, I mean, I think this is maybe you finally hit on like a real a real impact of from from COVID, right? So the oh, the, we, the, we stumbled upon it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of smart analysts are giving credit to kind of popular protests in China as having driven this this change uh, in in their COVID policy that we had kind of the makings of a, of a real movement against China's policies and Chinese leadership. Uh, saw it and decided to change. And I think that that's uh, something we haven't seen in China. Um, and so it's in, in quite some time. And so uh, that may be one of the more significant uh, impacts of, of COVID is in demonstrating that this kind of feedback loop between popular uprising, popular protest and Chinese leadership, that, that, that link still exists in some way, that there is a point at which China's leadership might listen to, to the public. We covered it all. We, we basically hit all the bases. So let me uh, just add one more uh, idea here. At, at the be I, I just remember talking to you at the beginning of the pandemic about uh, vaccine diplomacy. Do you remember this? That like the idea of vaccine <laughs> diplomacy. This was like a thing that I, we probably spent like an hour of our lives talking about vaccine diplomacy way back uh, when vaccines were new. And right. China was going around, like, giving out vaccines. And um, there was a question of, like, what was this going to buy China in terms of uh, geopolitical heft? Like, what they're going to have uh, this strategic advantage because they're giving away their vaccines to others. And I don't know, from my perspective, I think it's fair to say that didn't really pan out as a thing we need to we need to spend a lot of, of time talking about. But I, I'm interested in your take on this because this was something that ink was spilled, Marcus. Lots of innocent <laughs> ink was spilled on the concept of vaccine diplomacy. It was. There was. And again, I kind of agree with you. I think a lot of, of I'm not going to say nothing came of it, but I, I do think that the sort of claims that China was going to benefit from this substantially never never materialized. Now, it's certainly true that uh, China in the Asia Pacific region, some parts of Latin America, put in lots of money. Like they invested, like I think billions of dollars to like help get you know distribution distribution of, of vaccines. And surely um, one might think that there are some positive kind of externalities from that. And maybe if we look at you know opinion polls, uh, like how 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 do you regard China pre pandemic, post pandemic? Maybe in some of these countries, uh, you're going to see more favorable. Uh, views towards China that would be interesting to look at. We don't have that data in front of us, but but uh, maybe one of, we can we can come up with that. So it's possible that that um, views of China have changed in some of these places. But I think part of the problem was that the the vaccines that came out of the West, so the the Pfizer, Moderna, 
um, the UK vaccines, the the all the all the sort of ones that were developed very quickly, they were able to distribute actually at very high speeds, right? And so I think one of the things that happened was that the, the, it's not that China wasn't needed, but the but the 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 gap that they were going to fill actually ended up being a lot smaller than we thought at, at the time, right? So if it was one of these situations where the vaccines took a very long time to develop and it was really tricky to get you know, the right, the right numbers and dosage, and you really need, you know, uh, different competition to enter into the market, so to speak, China probably would have played a bigger role. But my sense is the, the mRNA vaccines were just so uh, uh, quick to, to not only come up with them, but to distribute them at, at, at scale. China couldn't really fulfill the need because there wasn't as much of a, a demand. So that's, that's my sense. Um, I think the other thing is, there was some question about uh, back in the in the early days of the vaccine, whether the Trump administration, you know, was going to play ball and like help other countries, and maybe they were just going to be like very nationalistic and, and things like that. Um, but actually, I think at the end, the Trump administration looks pretty good on the sharing of, of vaccine uh, data on on d- distribution to other countries. We didn't see the sort of uh, doom and gloom uh, to uh, that some people predicted would happen with the Trump administration. Uh, uh, in terms of the outcomes. But that's because all the vaccines were distributed after the Trump administration. So, okay. well, they didn't put anything in that. Maybe they tried to put things in that would have prevented the, the distribution. But yeah, I'm not saying that we should that that they yeah. necessarily did anything wrong. I'm just saying that this really has nothing to do with the Trump administration because the entire vaccine distribution effort was was almost entirely uh, in, almost in entirely. Right. That's that's fair. That's fair. And, and but I remember. In yeah. the early days of the vaccine, that was a legitimate concern that the Trump administration was going to do something to put up roadblocks to to prevent you know distribution in in other parts of the world. Well, and, and I think there is a legit criticism of the West generally in terms of its willingness to distribute vaccine to other countries before dealing with the the demand in those countries. Right, like when when vaccine became available in the United States, the first customers of that vaccine were people in the United States. And uh, the Biden administration was not particularly apologetic about that. But there were advocates in other parts of the world, certainly, who were saying that this is not a fair and equitable way to be dealing with a life-saving treatment. Now, with the perspective of a couple of years, the United States has given away uh, 664 million doses of vaccine. You know the number off the top of your head? No, uh, I've been on Twitter this whole time while you've been talking. Fair enough. Uh, more than double what, what China has given away. And so this idea of vaccine diplomacy kind of benefiting China to the detriment of the United States, I think, ended up being a non-story. But it's something that certainly a lot of people were worried about and, and, um, and you know, spending a lot of time talking about. Right. Well, thanks so much, Marcus, for, for, that, for that discussion. Uh, covered a lot of ground there. Um, <laughs> thanks, everyone, for listening and for coming back for... Uh, for the spring 2023 semester with us. If you have any um, comments or questions that you'd like us to address um, on the podcast, or you just want to tell Marcus he's wrong about something. Um, I, like, I always like that. Yeah, you can do that. Go to speakpipe, speakpipe.com slash cheap talk. Yeah. Thanks everyone. We'll, we'll see you next time. I love, by the way, that the, the, um, the story, I, this is a while ago, but the, the, one password or whatever the company was that's whose only job it is to like last pass. keep last pass your only job 
is to make secu- your password secure. And even they got hacked and everything got all screwed up. So, Jeff, like, I don't know. What are you supposed to do? Like, what are you supposed You're just supposed to have, like, ridiculous, like, weird passwords everywhere that you're never going to remember. And so you'll just change them every single time you look. Like, that's basically what I do. I just change my password every single time I have to log into something. And I get the little, like, you, you know, just hit reset password because you, you know yeah, you're not going to remember because, it. Right, exactly. <laughs> because otherwise. Like, I just don't, like, if I save it on this computer, I, if, and if I'm using the Firefox, like, thing with the other computer, I'm worried that, like, in the cloud somewhere, like, that password, I, I don't know what I'm doing. All I know is these passwords have gotten out of control, and seemingly, you can trust nobody. Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. I mean, the, the, the best practice is still to use a password manager, despite this that is, LastPass That stuff. is the best practice. Yes, that's your best practice. I'm not sure I would okay. use LastPass, frankly. Um, mostly because of the way they handled the hack in terms of not being very forthcoming about what was going on. Right. It happened like several months. They keep like releasing. Oh yeah. And they also got this. (laughs) Oh yeah. They also got this. So I personally use one password, um, but I think it's totally fine to use a uh, password manager that's built into your browser. That makes a lot of sense. So for people using Macs, that would be, and, and phones, that would be Safari and iPhones. If, if you're using like Firefox, that'll work too. The nice thing about using um, Safari's built-in password manager is that that information is then end-to-end encrypted as part of iCloud. So it's, it's secure in that way. But any password manager is fine. You want to store your vault, your, your password file um, somewhere that's encrypted. And if you use that password manager's cloud service, usually it is. So the LastPass uh, passwords that were hacked, they got the encrypted file, right? And hopefully no way to decrypt that file. Although there might be other information around on particular people that might allow them to decrypt a, a particular password file. But because of because everything is encrypted, it's like less of a, a disaster when a password manager or site like this gets hacked. I see. But you should be using a password manager, and then you should be using two-factor authentication whenever you can. I love two-factor. I, I, I have two-factor on every single thing that allows it or has it. Two-factor is great. That, that's cool. But the future is no passwords at all. The future is um, you're authenticated in some other way. It's a passcode. So like uh, Apple and Google and Microsoft have this concept of a passcode that is slowly kind of being adopted by websites and other services where if your phone knows you're you, it'll log you in. You never enter anything. Um, And you can use that even when you're on a computer, if the computer can communicate in a secure way to your phone. So Mm -hmm. it kind of combines two-factor authentication and a more secure, there's no password to lose because you're authenticated directly through your device. Hmm. Yeah, that seems better than trying to remember these ridiculous passwords or, or rely on some service that may or may not get hacked down the road or whatever. I think that's a pass key, actually, not a passcode. I should probably get the passcode makes it sound like it's like a sentence, right? It's like you're saying a sentence. Yeah, it's pass key. I'm sorry. Pass uh, key. Yeah, that's the that's the term that this consortium is using as a replacement right. for password, not passcode. Pass key. So uh, should we do a Last of Us <laughs> like? Uh, uh, you know, pod podcast watch along situation. Well, how far are you? I've, I've, I see the problem is I'm only like two episodes in the third. You got to watch the third one. That's, that's all there is. I, right. I haven't watched the third one. It's, it's okay. kind of what I, wait, what's today? Thursday? Yes, you're right. There's been three. Yeah. Yeah. No, the third but, one's, third one's good. Evidently the third one is like where things happen. The third one is good. Um, yeah. I, you know, in this, I am not, did you watch station 11? I started it. I had a. I got to admit, 
And the problem was me. Oh, I yeah. had a hard time kind of following and what was I just I lost interest. You know, I just kind of gave up. Oh, I just couldn't do it because I found it too upsetting. Oh what? yeah, no, I had no problem with that. I yeah. just I just for whatever reason, you know, you you watch a show and sometimes after a couple episodes, you just sort of the will to watch the next one just kind of it dithers. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. In this in this particular case, I, I watched the first episode and I thought to myself, wow, this show is amazing. I cannot handle it. Like it was okay. like too so close that was, to that home. Was your, it, okay, that was <coughs> Station Eleven. Station Eleven. It was like right, it was okay. like I've you know moved to a different place in the pandemic. The like whole like children on their own, parents having been uh, lost to that pandemic was a too hit me too hard. Um, and I, and so I, I had to set it aside for my own mental health. Um, yeah. so I'm like, when the, I'm watching the last of us, I'm like, this also is stressful for me. Right. Like I really like, don't, <laughs> right. don't, don't like this, 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 some of these plot lines, but, um, I was told by the internet that you got to make it through to episode three, that episode three is where, um, you know, you may not like it. You can stop then, but you have to give it that those first three episodes to see if it's for you. And I will say I found episode three to be. Excellent, so, and to like change my thinking about the about the series. Okay, I will, I will, I will pledge that by the next time we have our a podcast uh, episode, I will have watched episode three. So I could, I would like to discuss it with you. My question for you is, and, and my wife and I disagree on this point: is The Last of Us a show? Is it a zombie show? Yes. Okay, I disagree with that. She thinks, and you think it's a zombie show. I don't see zombies. Or, uh, okay. I see a fungus that like changes your being, <laughs> but they're not zombies. Well, right? I, do we have to go like pick up the Dresner book and get the definition? I mean, what, what well, what's a zombie? What would constitute a zombie for you? Uh, a zombie from let's see what Wikipedia says. Yeah, it's an undead revenant. I'll have to Google that one next. Created through the reanimation of a corpse. Is that what's going on in Last of Us? I don't undead. Okay, fine. So I mean, it may not be the like the. And where's the like biting? Like and you like transfer it by bites? I mean, I guess there's that weird stuff coming out of people's uh, mouths. Maybe yeah, that's what you, they're you getting. You transfer it by bites. Oh, okay, so that part sticks. But yeah, I mean, undead. I'm pretty. This is like very clearly in the zombie genre. Instead of calling it a virus, we're using um, uh, mushrooms, fungus, fungus, um, right. which is you know new and and fun um fun thing for me to worry about in fact i put in the in the chat marcus um this wall street journal article that was published uh yesterday dangerous fungi are spreading across us as oh, temperature great. rises this is life imitating art or this, art this imitating is, life this is the scenario posited by the yeah. last of us which is a what a pretty old video game right like when when did this video game come out they're, they're ahead of their time so they like the idea in Last of Us is that this this fungi, this mushroom, normally wouldn't be able to live inside humans because uh, our body temperatures are too are too high. But because of climate change, um, they are adapting. These these mushrooms are adapting to be able to to live inside um, animals at higher temperatures. And there's a study um, about how they're uh, they're adapting and spreading across America to places that they weren't otherwise. Um, because of the, the evolutionary pressure of climate change, which is horrifying and terrifying. So um, so is Last of Us an allegory? I mean, is it about climate change, do you think? I don't know. 
I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if I use allegory correctly in that sentence, but yeah, is it about is it a metaphor? <laughs> Maybe I should watch the show first, and then we can discuss whether it's an allegory or a metaphor. Pretty sure it's not an allegory. I'm not sure what those are, but, but I don't like think Marcus, it's if this isn't a zombie show to you, what what would be? I mean, we have like a bunch of we have a thing that's spreading by like these humans turned into monsters biting people. If that's not a if that's not a zombie story, I don't do, know. I don't do know what it is. do people in Last of Us, and I'll call them people, do they do they die and then come back alive? Well, they're they're infected. Right. Right. So yeah. in like I don't know, it's been a while since I watched Walking Dead, which is like a quintessential zombie show, right? Um you say so. You never watched that one? I never watched that. My wife did. She liked it a lot. It's too stressful. It's the whole thing is too stressful. Stressful for me. I can't well, you know what's it. funny about that? She she um she fast forwards through the like the violent parts. So I guess she likes the <laughs> story and the dialogue the, or whatever for the yeah. for the trace of humanity that's left in the, yeah in the exactly. World. So she just goes right through. She doesn't even watch the zombie parts. Yeah, I like that. That's what uh, that might be my new approach to <laughs> to um to the last. So list. yeah, I mean, to me, a zombie is somebody that had, was alive, died. And then came back in this alternate form and can like infect people. And then subsequently those people will do that. My sense from the first two episodes of last of us is that's not what's going on. They're they're they, They're alive. They're infected by this thing and they get changed, but I don't think they die and come back. I think they've just been alive throughout. Yeah. If, if your definition of zombie revolves around this die and come back element, then you're right. Well, I mean, it, it's the, the the zombie Wikipedia entry makes very clear it's it's an undead corporal revenant. I don't know what corporal means, and I don't know what revenant means, but undead I think means they are dead and then or come back alive. I'm putting. I'm giving you a uh, another link that addresses uh-huh. this question. Oh, well, okay. So if the internet's discussing it, then I must have a point. I don't know if the I'm whole, not the only one, the whole internet I'm not the is only one it. that that worries that this is actually not a zombie show. Okay. I'm I'm validated. You found a reference to somebody talking about this. I feel validated. So this random guy on the internet says, "The Last of Us presents a unique case for the zombie fan. The story's animated human monsters known as the infected look like zombies, shamble like zombies." rot like zombies and bite like zombies but does that technically make them zombies after all there's one crucial element missing they aren't corpses but rather living human beings whose brains have been taken over by the cordyceps fungi so this is what you're saying marcus right um, they're not zombies and my answer this is this a hill is like, i am gonna die on like i i this is will a stupid stupid debate. i'm gonna defend this yeah i like how you said this random guy on the internet well the, everybody's listening to this we're two random guys <laughs> on the internet <laughs> So fair, fair, fair point. <laughs> point taken. And maybe that's a good place. Maybe that's a good place yeah. to end this. Uh, I feel like that was that, that was a great comment that I made. So we probably should stop there. Yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna be able to give you anything better today. <laughs>